Let's pray and then we'll dive into the Word. Father God, we love you. We love you and we exalt your name. You are worthy of complete and total affection and adoration from us because of your goodness, not only in all the things that you've provided in this life and creation, the glories of being able to wake up in the morning, breathe air into our lungs and enjoy with gratitude, all of the things that you've provided this world. But the fact that you look down upon us in the darkness of sin and tragedy and pain and suffering and evil, and you said in your heart, I will redeem a people from this world who will glorify my name and will enjoy me in the way that they were always intended to forever. And in order to accomplish that, Father, you sent your Son into the world to display in perfect harmony grace and truth and to lift your name very, very high when he went to a cross to redeem us and purchase us. I'm grateful for that, Father, and that's what Christmas is about. You looking down on us and having mercy for our plights, for our difficulties, for just the, the sheer inability we have to love you and cherish you the way you ought to be. I give you all the glory, Father. Be with us as we look at the Scriptures today. Speak for me and give um, these people, myself included, what you want us to hear. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, please grab them, turn to Colossians 1. That's where we'll be for much of this morning. We're wrapping up today a series that we've kind of called um, Prayer Unceasing. And um, this series is looking at a prayer that the Apostle Paul has woven into his letter to the church at Colossae. And uh, it's been a treat to walk through this with you. We're going to have an opportunity to put what we've been reading in action. Tuesday... <laughs> this coming week at 6.15 at Snow King Skating Rink, they have a series of private rooms there, and one of those rooms um, is going to be a, uh, we're going to basically book it from 6.15 to 7.30 to um, come together as a, as a church that's kind of rooted here in Kingsgate and just gather as a body in uh, one of these rooms and pray for Kingsgate, pray for the greater Seattle area, pray for God's work throughout the entire country and the world, and his using of Risen Hope to accomplish his purposes. And so I invite you to come. If you have any questions about it, you can send an email to connect at risenhope.cc or uh, let me know, let somebody else here know, and, and we'll get you there. But 615 at Snow King. Um, let's read this passage, this prayer, and then I want to ask some questions about it. So Colossians 1, verse 9, says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance 
and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, last week we talked about Risen Hope's purpose because Risen Hope's purpose is woven into this prayer and really throughout the entire Bible. Uh, you will find notes, you'll find signals that point back to what our purpose is as a body of believers. And our purpose is very simple. It is we exist to know and to show God. And last week we spent a lot of time asking what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God in the way that the Bible defines it? And this week we're going to be looking at the other side of that coin, uh, which is showing God. We talked last week too about like knowing God is, is not simply having a series of facts about God that are true. That there is an aspect of knowing God when we look at it in the scriptures that is a devotion for, an intimacy with, a profound and intimate knowledge of this God, that we love him. And so the kind of showing here isn't going to be exactly what you would expect, just like the surface level of knowing isn't exactly what you expect. So let's ask this question. What do we mean um, by showing? That, that, uh, that in our experience of this knowledge of God, it yields a kind of reaction that you would expect. It brings forth in us, that in knowing God, a kind of response that can be described as showing him. So let's take a look at how Paul describes this. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you, be, be, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, So as to walk. I spent some time on this last week, so I won't belabor it too long here, but Paul's prayer here is that God would graciously fill the Colossian church's um, hearts and minds with a knowledge of his will, and that that knowledge will cause them to walk a specific way. And when he says walk here, this is a Hebrew idiom, and it means to behave in such a way, to live in such a way that it exudes and shows very visible indications that you know <laughs> something. So that people see you, it's not a mystery to them who you know. That person knows and acknowledges God, the Christian God. And this is why we call it showing God, and this is why we place a huge emphasis on it, that the reality of knowing God transforms us. And today I really want to basically just look at three specific ways that this prayer holds out engaging um, culture by showing them that you know God. And uh, my hope is that we would pray, we would all pray, not only Tuesday, but like every coming week, and um, that this, that this uh, church is, by God's grace, existing, that we would pray to, for God to press into us a kind of knowing that bears visible fruit that he would fill us up in a, in a kind of way of knowledge that we would show the world that we love God. So here are the three ways that I want to look at. These are the three points that we'll be orbiting. Number one is this. Paul says he wants the Colossian church to show God by bearing fruit 
in every good work. That's number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Number two is increasing in the knowledge of God. And number three is he wants them to have joy in thanksgiving as they patiently endure. Those are the three headings for today. You guys ready? You guys ready? All right, awesome. <laughs> Let's dive in. For, number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, we've talked about this a few times, so I'm going to take a, a slightly different angle. Um, what does it mean to bear fruit? Now, for the Colossian believers, um, and for us, Risen Hope, what it effectively means is that as Christians, we bear fruit when we look more and more like Jesus Christ. He's praying to God that they will look more like Jesus. And we have to be careful here because <clears throat> one of the ways we can go wrong is that we try to associate that looking more and more like Jesus with how we become a Christian. And that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that you bear fruit in good works and that's how you tick the box, now you are a Christian. Uh, we do not ever become worthy by doing morally good things. That's not Christianity at all. That doesn't mean we don't bring pleasure to God when we do good things. We absolutely do. But we cannot commend ourselves to God by doing good things. And this is critical because this is, the, this is one of the decisive differences between Christianity and every other worldview and religion in the world is that other worldviews would say that in order for you to commend yourself to God or to culture or to whatever you're aspiring to commend yourself to, you must accomplish moral and ethical things. And Christianity says no one can actually commend themselves to God by accomplishing um, these things. Um, that in fact, in order to fix us, God had to break into human existence in the form of Christ Jesus, and after three decades of living in active and passive obedience to the law of God, meeting that moral standard of righteousness and owning it completely, he gave his life and died in order that we would be set free from the obligation to commend ourselves in that way. Now, Jesus didn't just obey the standard. Jesus was the standard of righteousness personified, and all of his righteousness is counted towards us as we have faith in him. So trusting in his provision in the cross, believing in his work, is what allows God to look down on us and say, that person is righteous because he's seeing his son when he looks at us. Christianity says that the moral end, the standard, is achieved by Jesus Christ alone, and no one else can claim that. And this is expressed throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. As Paul says in Romans 6, let's take a look at this. It says, in Romans 6, the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. <laughs> so clearly here, we don't commend ourselves by accomplishing what Christ accomplished to God. 
We commend ourselves to God by believing and trusting in his sacrifice. Christ did it all. He accomplished it. And the gospel is the means by which we are allowed to, um, to, to not only experience the beauty of the moral standard of righteousness, but grow in sanctification towards it every single day of our life. So this language of bearing fruit is really interesting because it's expressing an outgrowth of that gospel impact on our lives. It's not expressing a series of events leading to it. It's expressing what, is, what happens after you do believe. And if you think about it from an agrarian perspective, because that's clearly the language that Paul's after here with bearing fruit, the analogy here of a, of a tree bearing fruit is powerful for a few reasons. One of them is this. We often need to be reminded that a tree that bears fruit isn't bearing fruit for the tree to eat. The tree doesn't eat its own fruit. The fruit that a tree bears is for others. And this is true about our own fruit. The, true, the fruit that we bear when Christ makes us more like him isn't, and I think we're inclined to forget this sometimes subtly, by saying like, oh man, that Bible study was really fruitful. And there's a way in which a Bible study can be really fruitful. But what people should see is when they look at your life, they should say, that Bible study was really fruitful because that person is different and I'm enjoying the fruit that God is producing in their life. So fruit is enjoyed by out, from the outside, not necessarily on the inside. Secondly, um, and more foundationally, the growth of a fruit isn't something that a tree causes. The tree definitely grows the fruit, but all of the factors that cause fruit to grow in a tree come from external and extrinsic sources. Like there's sun, there's water, there's soil, there was a seed initially. <laughs> all of those things, and the farmer's care, if there's a farmer watching it, all of those things cultivate and cause the seed to grow and cause the, tr the fruit ultimately to appear on the tree. Since we're the ones bearing fruits as Christians, it's easy for us to forget that ultimately God is the one that causes growth. So 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7 is interesting. Paul is engaging the church in Corinth, and he's saying to them, he's expressing to them, hey, listen, there's divisions in the church. You guys are all trying to side with different teachers. One person wants to be with Apollos. One person wants to be with me. One person wants to be with, with this teacher. All of you are trying to to side with different teachers, and you don't understand. You guys are acting crazy. We're all workers for God. God is the one who makes believers, and he's the one who grows believers. For example, this text here in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you, Corinthian church, believed as the Lord assigned each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And what Paul is saying here is that God grows believers. God is the one who produces the fruit. He says that even the fact that we brought you the gospel is actually just an outgrowth of the fruit in our own lives. God assigned us that task. He assigned us that labor. And so one of the reasons why I'm drawing our attention to this in particular is I'm honestly, like, desperately trying to undercut my inclination and our collective inclination um, to try to achieve only what God can provide, or to try to earn or merit only what God can give us. 
I am not saying we're not involved in this at all, and you'll see in a second here why I think we are very involved in the process of growing fruit, but I am saying that we can't earn it and we can't achieve it. It is a gift from God. Paul says this of his own ministry. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is saying, all the apostles, I know they worked their butts off. I worked harder than any of them. I, I put them to shame in my work. I've done everything I possibly can do. However, at the end of the day, all of it, every ounce of strength, every ounce of effort came from one source, God's grace. God's grace drove my ministry from beginning to end. He provided the desire. He provided the motivation. He provided the conviction. He provided the energy to express it. All of this came from God and his mercy on me. And Paul even commends the Philippian church. Philippians 2, which we've looked at a few times here, <laughs> but it's so poignant in this way. I, I just needed to bring it back up. He says in Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so he's talking about bearing fruit, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's not giving any room for boasting here. Because what he's saying is this, your energy expressed in bearing fruit is God. And your inclination and will in wanting to bear fruit is God. The Bible is very clear on this. God's grace and power are the fountainhead of fruit bearing. He does this ultimately. <laughs> and Paul is praying for the Colossian church to bear fruit as an outgrowth of their knowledge of God. Um, and when we think about bearing fruit in our lives, we need to think first with God. We need to go to God and ask him like Paul's doing for the Colossian church. Number two, so this is the second header. Um, what is the second reason, way that Paul communicates to the Colossian church about how he's praying for them to show God? Here it is. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Um, and for some of you who are paying attention, you're probably like, well, this is a little bit weird. You're saying in order to know God or in knowing God, one of the ways you show God is by knowing God. Follow me on this. Um, Paul does not see the knowledge of God as a one-time deposit. He does not see understanding or comprehending the reality of God as an event. He sees it as a reality that we are constantly saturated in. This is our God, an infinite, unsearchable God. And therefore, he can be known infinitely in ever-increasing joy. And he can be treasured infinitely in that way. Therefore, our, our task as Christians, um, as those people who know God intimately and love him, is that we would press into that knowledge every day of our lives. And uh, you remember uh, John 17 last week, we talked about the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying for all those who would believe. And he says, this is eternal life. I'll define it for you. 
eternal life is that you know the only true God and the one whom he sent, Jesus. That's how Jesus defines eternal life. And Paul desires that one of the outcomes of the Colossian church knowing God, like having an encounter with the reality of God, is that they desire and they actively and they ferociously pursue more and more knowledge every day of their lives. He wants one of, their bypro- one of the byproducts of knowing God to be desiring to know God. And the way this ultimately happens is through this book, through Scripture. It's through the Bible. People who really know God love their Bible because that is the fountainhead that they drink from to experience more and more knowledge of God. They desire to meet him in prayer. They desire to meet him in the word, and they want to hear from him. They are very, very thirsty for more God. And so this bears repeating from last week, um, and this is a little bit more of the nuts and bolts. God causing any fruit to grow in our lives at all is not a robotic process. This is not a process by which he zaps us and we know things. He's not structured it or designed it that way, even though he could. Um, It's not magic, and it's not automatic. God uses normal means for him to accomplish a supernatural feat in getting the glory of God in our hearts and having us treasure him (laughs) through reading the scripture. And so, one of the expectations for Paul's prayer here, and really for us as we seek the knowledge of God, is that we press deeper and if I can be real in, with you, like the way you do that is by grabbing this book every single day and reading it and pleading with God to show you the glory of God that is really here. Um, this is not a, a painting or a relic in a museum that we can put off to the side and, and honor and cherish and appreciate. This is designed, God wrote a book and he means for us to read it This is designed as a window into another world that exists, the real world. And in order for us to know God, we need to read this book because there's really literally nothing more important for our souls and for the souls of the people around us for us to engage in than this book. And so I want to just hammer home, like bearing fruit is not an automatic process. It requires us getting in the word and desiring to get in the word. And if you don't feel the inclination on a daily basis to do that, I would ask that you pray for it. Um, Here's an example. Like God, God is, God is not in the, God kind of has an interesting way of working in. He can do miracles. He can cause things to happen miraculously, but oftentimes he uses natural means. Here's an example of, of, of why it's important for us to read the Bible. When he wanted the people of Israel to be freed from the Egyptian nation, he could have teleported them across or just carried them up and tossed them on the other side safely of the Red Sea. He didn't do that. He split the sea and he made a million or so people walk on the seabed between walls of water. Why? It's because God wants them to trust him. He wants them to walk with him. And he desires for them to put their hand in his and go with him. And they used natural means. They walked, all of them, across the seabed. And the point is this. He is in the business of using natural means to accomplish supernatural feats. 
When we read the Bible, we are pressing our eyes against the glory of God. And we're asking God, show me who you are. Show me something powerful about you that will cause me to look more like you. Um, And that's what number two is, an ever-increasing knowledge in an infinite and glorious God that by God's grace, we will desire and long for that knowledge every day of our life. Number three, what's the third way in which Paul is expressing them showing God in his prayer for them? It says, we possess all endurance and patience with joy. He wants them, the Colossian church, to possess all endurance and patience with joy. It's a very weird way of saying it. And then he says, giving thanks to the Father. Now, these are all good things. No one's going to say endurance is a bad character quality. No one's going to say, oh, you're a very enduring person? That's garbage. And no one's going to say to you, uh, you know, I don't like the fact that you're so joyful, generally speaking. There might be a few people that would say that. Um, (laughs) So being patient, enduring, being joyful, being thankful, these are all very wholesome, beautiful characteristics that anyone can show. Paul's asking them that asking God for them that they display them. But the thing about it that's interesting is that he's not asking that they do this of their own ability or strength. He's praying for something else to happen so that those things are natural outgrowths. This is what he says. Look at verse 11 through 12. It says, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We need to remind ourselves, lest we forget, that this again is still a matter of showing God. Um, And this is still arising from the, it's an outgrowth of a knowing, a real knowing of God. It's not divorced from it at all, but it's more at this point in the prayer than just simply knowing. There's something that Paul is after here that is more than just simply knowing. He says, I am praying for you, Colossian church, to be strengthened with all power. What what could that mean? He's praying to God for this to happen, so we know that it's not something that they can just drum up. It's not something that he can say, hey, you guys should be really strong, so strengthen yourselves. (laughs) So it's not a natural kind of strength. It's got to be a spiritual and supernatural strength. He's on his knees. He's pleading with God, strengthen them, Father, And he's asking for something that, to me, on the surface, looks a little ludicrous. Looks a little crazy. He's saying, according to his, according, I'm praying to you, for you, Colossian Church, that according to his, according to God's glorious might, you would be strengthened. Why would he ask this? Um, He's not saying, you know, I just want God to give you a little bit of strength. I want you guys to have just a li- enough for you guys to get through. He says, the strength I want you to have is according to the glorious might of the eternal, all-satisfying, all-sufficient God who controls and governs everything. That's who I want to give you power, and I want it to, him to give you power according to his might, his glorious might. I want, I, 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 want, I want you to think about that for a moment in reflection on this. Paul isn't asking God for something that God is unwilling to give. I think we get caught up, and I mentioned this last week, on the idea that 
I'll pray, but I honestly don't think that God's going to answer my prayer. And I want to just push back on you a little bit and say, and myself, God is way more willing to answer our prayers than we are to pray. Way more willing. Now, will he answer them exactly the way we want? No, he'll answer them better than we want. In ways that we can't even see. Even if we don't understand it as better in the moment. The reason this prayer is in the Bible is because God wants us to read it and he wants us to emulate it. He wants us to ask for these kinds of things. He wants us to seek him and ask him for things that are impossible, like his glorious might to be given to us, to know him deeper and more powerfully. Um, And he's very willing to provide that. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Why exactly do they need the strength of the living God flowing through them in order to accomplish anything? How could this strength have any bearing on their walk with God? And what does it achieve? Paul says, for all endurance and patience with joy. That's why they need strength. To endure, to do it patiently, and to do it with joy, thanking God the Father. Now, (laughs) I could bring a lot of Scripture to bear answering the question why exactly we would need to have strength to endure, and and you probably have already thought of a few things already, Uh, but I want to look at this text again and see if Paul discloses in this text the reason, his motivation for this, like why he is inclined to pray right now for them. He says, being strengthened with all power, according to God's glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here's a clue. He's saying that he wants them, he wants us, Risen Hope, to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us, who's made us qualified in his sight to share in an inheritance with the saints in light. Now we've talked about this inheritance more than once already. Um, And the name of this church, Risen Hope, is an outgrowth of just embracing that inheritance and recognizing it for what it is. We'll never go far from it because it's so beautiful and because it's what holds us in place where we're at. And I'll express that in, in just a second. This inheritance is the hope that's laid up for us in heaven, namely that we will one day dwell in the ever-increasing joy and ever-increasing love of a Father who has redeemed us. And we will experience the beauty of being in His presence forever. (laughs) But here's the connection with Paul's prayer. The inheritance is ours. If you trust in Jesus Christ, it is as good as yours. But you're not tasting a lot of it right now, are you? You're not experiencing it right now. It will be fully in the future, but not right now. We live right now in a world that is very broken and full of pain and suffering and heartache and trauma. That's our reality right now. This inheritance is true. It is for us. It is coming for us because it's guaranteed by God, but it's not quite ours yet. Paul is asking you know what you need? 
supernatural strength for, Christians? You know what you need, Colossian Church, supernatural strength for? You need it to endure in order to get to that inheritance. You need to endure in such a way that it exudes a kind of inexplicable patience, an inexplicable joy. (laughs) You need to have this weird reality about your life that says that your treasure is not in this world, in this present world. Your hope isn't what this world can give you like everyone else's hope is. Your hope is invincible, and it is kept by God in heaven, like 1 Peter 1 says, and it is an unshakable inheritance of being with forever the one for whom you were made. This isn't anything better than that in this world. There's nothing better. There's no, no higher joy. This is the ceiling of joy, is that sentence that I just gave you, and it is infinitely high. So when things go south in this world, when you have trouble at work, when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with relationships, when we struggle with pain and just trauma that this world experiences, whether it's through evil or through natural disasters or whatever it might be, or even when we are rejected and marginalized for loving Christ and sharing the gospel. All of those things are right where God's strength meets us, and we do the impossible. We may not think it's impossible, but it is objectively impossible. We endure with joy. We recognize that our hope is not in this world, and we enjoy, we enjoy God in the middle of suffering. John 16, 22, Jesus says to his disciples, I want to give you a joy that the world cannot take away. It will be an indomitable, invincible joy that says, in the heart of a Christian, God has me. I am God's even when everything is the darkest. All other joys in this world are finite. There's only one joy that is infinite, and that is knowing God. Um, But Paul doesn't just stop there at joy. He continues with this idea of giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, giving thanks. So we're not just joyful. We're not just enduring. We're not just expressing patience and not being impatient. We are thankful. And who are we thankful to? We're thankful to the Father, which is an interesting turn of phrase here because he didn't just say God. Saying the Father has caused us to be qualified, and that's why we're thankful. He's qualified us, and he didn't qualify us, if I can be frank, because we're awesome and we're just nailing it. He didn't qualify us because we bring a lot of really good to the table. He qualified us himself personally because he loves us. It is a beautiful thing that we are adopted children of God because it meant that he looked down on us and had favor to us individually. We're not a mistake. We're not something that he's trying to work on loving. The very reason we are his children are because he loves us unilaterally. And we give God glory, we thank Him, we worship Him for this undeserved love. And all of that is experienced through spiritual strength. I want to close with one last passage here uh, from the book of Ephesians that I think will bring this into focus. This is another passage (laughs) where Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And he's praying specifically for strength. So same thing is going on. He wants them 
to be strengthened. And I want to read through this passage because it's connected to literally everything we've talked about today in, in the last two weeks. Um, here's the, the prayer from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And then he just, what he said and what he's prayed is so exalting and so wonderful to him, he just starts to worship in the middle of his letter. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or even think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. There are, and I'm not joking about this, literally a thousand things that I want to pull out of this passage, and I feel guilty even bringing it up and putting it on the screen for just one purpose. <laughs> but I did it, so apologies. Paul is asking, I mean, this is such an amazing passage. Um, Paul is asking for God to grant them to be strengthened by Christ. To be strengthened with power through the Spirit of God in their inner being. And I want to I know why. why. Why do you want the Ephesian church and the Colossian church and the Risen Hope church and 2,000 years later, why do you want them to be filled with strength? The reason he's praying for God to grant them real strength is so that they might be able to comprehend and know the love of Jesus Christ. He recognizes that the love of Christ is a reality so boggling, so massive, and so huge that without God intervening, you will not know it. You can't. It is impossible to know this love because it is so immense and so powerful that it requires the strength of the living God to intervene and give us the ability in order to know it. If we have any chance to know God's love the way it ought to be known, we must be strengthened by God, and that is exactly what he's praying for. We're going to be worshiping in a moment, and if you're a believer, I invite you to communion, and I want you to really reflect on, on what we've talked about today as you, as you take communion. Um, when it comes to bearing fruit and good works, when it comes to being hungry for knowing God and going after him in the Bible, when it comes to enduring patiently with joy, when it comes to all of the things that we've talked about here that show God, all of that is rooted in the wellspring of Christ's love for us as displayed on the cross. All of it is connected to that. All of those things were purchased for us to enjoy and experience in fullness 
by Jesus Christ in his precious blood. And therefore, in order for us to get any kind of supernatural strength, we need to reflect that that was bought for us, that Christ paid for every ounce of that strength in order for us to know the immeasurable, unsearchable, boundless love. Nothing in created reality can compare to this. Nothing. Imagine the universe. It is pittance compared to the love of Jesus Christ. So outstretches, outstrips it and takes away its, its size. Please believe this. Like his love is that great. Trust him to provide you with the strength. And I would ask that you pray sincerely and honestly that he would give you the strength to know the love of Jesus Christ. And to undergird that, Paul in his doxology after praying this says that God is able to do far more than we can even imagine or think or conceive of. There's nothing we can conceive of that is beyond his hand, including giving us today here the strength of the living God. His hands are not bound. He is omnipotent and he desires for you to ask and for him to give. So let's pray. God, you are such a gracious and merciful God. And your mercy is new every morning. Despite our shortcomings, despite our inability to love and adore you in the way that that we ought to, you look down on us with mercy and grace and say, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. And you desire for us to come to you and to sincerely request, Father, that you would strengthen us, that we might be able to bear fruit, that we might desire to go into your word, that we might desire to endure everything that this world offers and provides us in the, in the form of pain and suffering, and that we would endure with joy, Father. We need to do these things, and we ask that you would, by your gracious hand, reach down into our souls and grant us the ability. Give us your strength according to your glorious might. Father, in a season where we celebrate the birth of Christ Jesus, and we just acknowledge and recognize that you sent your only begotten son into the world so that we would have the ability to pray these things to you and for them to have any effect. So I ask that because of the love of Jesus Christ, you would give us the strength to know that love, to embrace it, to appreciate it, to look beyond all the hurt and pain and suffering in this world and to see that you have made a way for us to be with you forever and to enjoy the love of Jesus Christ in a way that is impossible without the strength of the living God flowing through our veins. So I pray that you would come and for each person here, Father, grant them that ability, grant them that love, grant them that strength to know you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.